you. I think the thing that signifies I have a brain probably greatest in my career is that once I had enough money, I hired a guitar player to play instead of me. But I'm here alone today with a borrowed guitar. Um, I, I really am not a public speaker, and, um, but it's interesting to see how life tends to have a domino effect. I'm amazed at how the kind of the emotional and psychological tool pack that everybody's born with is so different. Some people have taken the stage up here and said things that were compelled from some place within them that I don't even think exists in me. And I've sat there in awe going, I'm so glad to be part of the family of man and to have a brother or a sister that does what they do because none of us does everything. I have loved music from the time I was a kid and uh, I had a life-changing experience when I was a a 14-year-old and fell in love with my older sister's boyfriend <laughs> who was 26 at the time and I don't think he knew that I was alive but <clears throat> he um, invited me to go to a church and I really had no interest in the church at all. It was down on Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee but he was going to pick me up alone and uh, so I had about a 25-minute drive in the car with him and I thought maybe in 25 minutes I could have my way <laughs> with this fabulous man. I don't know what I would have done with him, but um, <laughs> anyway, I, I was presented with an incredible message that day, and um, it's, it was kind of like the story of the officer that stood up and ran serpentine and deflected the gunfire from all of those other people in his platoon. You know, you kind of look at a situation like that and you think, would I have been that selfless? And um, not to get into that particular day, but I was kind of confronted with the message of the gospel and realized that, that, that God had deflected what was rightfully mine in the gunfire headed my way. And what that did, I was a lover of music, but um, never had much confidence in my own voice. And what compelled me to write songs from that point on was that nobody was singing that passion. Carol King wasn't singing it, James Taylor wasn't singing it, and I thought, gosh, I would just like a modicum of faith in, in anything, in a song that moved me. So <clears throat> I started singing and quite frankly just hated the sound of my own voice. And, um, and I would sing, you know, my songs about faith back to back with Carol King's Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Somehow it all made sense to me. And, um, and, and still does because life is lived in broad strokes. But I decided that at some point I wanted to be in the music business and, and I got a job uh, cleaning a studio and working, I hopefully wanted to work my way up to being an engineer. And I got to do really um, illustrious things like demagnetize the tape heads and take out the trash and pick people's used chewing gum off the microphone stands and and every once in a while I'd get to hear somebody sing. Anyway, during that time, uh, I'd written about a dozen songs and, and made a tape for my parents, never interested in playing anybody at work, any of my tapes. I, it was just, you know, not for me. And, um, and without my knowing it, I was 15 at the time, without my knowing it, somebody from work had gotten hold of one of these tapes and called a record company and played the tape over the phone. And I'll tell you, I've got a copy of that tape today. It's awful. It's just awful. And there must have been something. This was before fiber optics. And 
evidently something in the phone line really made the tape sound good. So I signed my first recording contract as a 15-year-old and, and started making records. Um, and to this day, you know, my approach to life is pretty simple. And I think that we do the best we can and um, walk until we fall and then get up and keep going. And uh, I wrote a song a couple of months ago because I have, I'm from a large family and two of my one niece and one nephew left for college. And I had a sister and a sister-in-law who were just thrown into a deep depression for a long time because they invested their lives in these kids. So I don't know if this song will ever make it to an album. I've recorded it, but you know, that kind of... So enough about my talking. This is, song is dedicated to all of your parents as you take wings and leave. Your smile lights up a room like a candle in the dark and warms me through and through. And I guess that I had dreamed we would never be apart. But that dream did not come true. And missing you is just a part of the dream. And missing you feels like a way of life. I'm living out the life that I've been given. But baby, I still wish you were mine. And I cannot hear the telephone jangle on the wall. And not feel a hopeful thrill. And I cannot help but smile at any news of you at all. And I guess I always will. Cause missing you is just a part of living. And missing you feels like a way of life. I'm living out the life that I've been given. Baby, I still wish you were mine I'm living out the life that I've been given But baby, I still wish that you were mine Thank you. Um, I enjoyed the, the uh, panel on Perseverance because I made my 12th album before I had a number one song. And <laughs> not that you ever have one, but it's interesting that you do a job because you love it, not because, not because well, especially an, an, an artistic job. You just have to do it regardless of whether or not anybody's applauding or really even noticing. You know, I'm sure Fritz painted many pictures without an audience ooing and eyeing, and my guess is he probably, you know, had to do a little concentrating today as he was pouring out a soul on canvas, and we were all just stuffing our faces, but that's part of the beauty of the driven artist. First, one of the first concerts I ever did was the summer I was 17, I was getting ready to leave for school, and I got a call from Lakeside Amusement Park, and I wasn't in the phone book, so they called uh, the friend of mine who'd produced my first album, and and he gave me the big news. They, at Lakeside Amusement Park wasn't saying me to come sing for $300. Anyway, he 
Uh, next time I saw him dropping by the studio, this friend of mine, his name was Brown, kind of a different name, and he, and he said, you're not gonna believe this. You've been asked to fly across the country and sing at this amusement park for $300. I was going, oh God, $300, okay. I've been saving like crazy. Yes, my parents are, save, are paying for school, but I have to foot all my entertainment. And I had saved $500, which was a lot more back then than it is now. And I said, well, I'd love to go, but if I blow $300, just to go to Lakeside Amusement Park and sing, that leaves me $200 in the fall. And he looked at me and thought, this is a girl that is in desperate need of management. She's gonna spend her life paying people to hear her sing. Anyway. About three weeks after that, um, I, I went to a book and record store in Southern California and uh, and um, I was all hyped up by the manager there. It was part of a strip mall. It was not really that neat of a place, but he said, I'm so excited about your first record, and uh, we've sent out 1,200 engraved invitations. We're just expecting an incredible crowd, and I had never sung to a crowd that size, and I had basically just sung at slumber parties and stuff like that. And, um, and he said, it's gonna be amazing. Well, my mother and I took the trip together because I was going to be leaving for college pretty soon after that. And we got there, and I, we set up the sound, not unlike this, and, uh, and I started playing. And, you know, I was sitting there going, well, shoot, what time's the party start? And for an hour and a half, no one even walked into the book and record store. Of course, I'm thinking, how does a guy survive with no walk-up traffic? I mean, anyway, about, about 45 minutes into the set, my mother feeling so awful for me. She was just so embarrassed to watch me singing to the manager, you know, during this huge party. She left and went shopping and uh, came back and picked me up and, and uh, said, well, you know, how was it? And I said, you know, Mom, it, it doesn't really make any difference if anybody's there or not. You just do what you do. And I've had the incredible blessing of getting to eventually sing songs that people wanted to hear. And um, I was talking to Ellen, uh, a young woman that I met sitting down the aisle way, and, um, and she, we were talking about different things that people choose to talk about up here on stage. And sometimes you go, gosh, I mean, is this person an egomaniac? Is this person bragging about how much they do for society? You know, what's the MO here? And to me, this is a setting that should be vulnerable enough that you say, this is what it's taken me. I had to work this hard, or this is what I give back. Not because anybody's gotten on the microphone because they want to brag, but because by example, they're saying, these are the things that have meant a lot to me. And I, and I was gonna, yes, I'm involved in, in uh, I was gonna tell you a little bit about some of the exciting things that I've gotten to be a part of, and the fact is nobody's ever gonna hear about them because I can't imagine that I would ever talk about them to anybody except for you guys because my guess is that you're gonna probably wind up a lot of you making a lot of money, doing things that you love, not everybody, but a lot of you. And um, we live in a society that says once you have a lot of things, um, it, it'll give you some level of happiness. And I know a lot of people with a lot of things that aren't very happy. And the exciting thing about having financial flexibility is getting to kind of go incognito and do things for people. And the first time I ever made a significant gift, I, I gave away the, the royalties of four songs that I had written. 
and it was not just a one-time financial gift. It was kind of the gift that kept giving because songs pay until 50 years after you're dead. And you know what? It was the most painful thing I've ever done. And I did it, and I was so excited, and the enthusiasm and their response, uh, the people that I gave these songs to who needed it a lot more than I did. And I went home and cried my eyes out because I was just so selfish. And, but once you push beyond what you think you're capable of, you know, all of us want, we want to do altruistic things, but, you know, nobody's good, really. And regardless of what people think, you have to, you have to push beyond your comfort zone to do things for other people. And then once you learn that it feels good, then you, you go, oh, I, like, I could get addicted to this feeling. I like this. Um, okay, I don't know. We don't really have very much time, so I'm just... Oh, God, we have no time. That's it. Okay, I'm going to do one last song. Oh, gosh. This song is not a hit. And, uh... And this guitar is not even really in tune, but that'd take me forever. Uh, my husband's wallet was uh, misplaced a couple of months ago, and it just became the trauma of our house. You know, he was on the hold with American Express for days on end, trying to cancel his cards, trying to, you know, reorganize his life, and he was on his way out of town, and sort of in the process, his big beef with me is that I always take the side of the underdog, and I always go, no, I don't, no, I don't. And the longer he's on the phone with these credit card companies, the angrier he's getting with the guy that stole his wallet. And, of course, I'm in another part of the house sitting there playing guitar, and the longer he's angry at the guy stealing his wallet, the more I start empathizing with the guy who stole his wallet. So, <laughs> But it made me think about how, um, how susceptible all of us are to doing the wrong thing. And I thought maybe if my life had been different and I had seen a rich man's wallet lying on a table, that it would have been a temptation for me. And... Um, Anyway, so, because things today are a temptation for me. I'm not going to tell you about them because I don't want you to know, but they're things that I know. Anyway, the tough thing about writing a song is trying to find a creative first line, so I'm sure you'll be wowed with the depth of this one. I found somebody's wallet Lying on the street it had just a little cash and I was just a little weak Too long I've been hungry, guess it's just my lucky day But the name and the phone number won't fade away Well I know the rub of knowing what is right And I know the pain of swallowing a lie Naked I came into this world And naked I'll leave one day Faultless I came into this world How will I leave this day? Cause people wanna own you With pretty words and pretty smiles But no one's really trusted You take an inch, you take a mile the dignity in living is written on my heart. I can't negotiate it. 
that's the hardest part. I know the right of knowing what is right. And I know the pain of swallowing a lie. And I have to face the mirror every day. Naked I came into this world. Naked I'll leave someday. Faultless I came into this world. How will I leave this day? Given these choices and given my need, given these voices. Given my greed, well, I know the rub of knowing what is right, and I know the pain of swallowing a lie, and I have to face this mirror every day. Naked, I came into this world. How will I leave someday? Faultless, I came into this world. How will I leave this day?